Hello and welcome to series three of the Shindig, an archaeology podcast. Um, sorry, you're going to have to do that again there, Tom? Why? What? So what sorry? Podcast, the Shindig, oh, an Ar- archaeology winning. Ar- oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Was it a double or was a it double award winning? Possibly. Double, double award winning from the Consider Constructor Scream Leading Lights Awards 2023. Was that yes. the one you're referring to? That's ah. the one I'm referring to, Tom, yes. Is that for like community engagement outreach sort of activities for, with the Shindig? And, and the overall uh, award as well. It was the overall, just in general for yeah. community yeah, service. So That's two awards yeah. for one podcast. I mean, which is more than, yeah, one each. You know, you have, <laughs> we, you know, we, can, we just swap one award in the box. Bart Simpson and his pals with the comic book will just swap the awards around and have it for a few <laughs> days each. What a way to start season three, though. Yeah, it's fantastic. And thank you so much to the Considerate Construction Stream and to all of our listeners and, and our subscribers as well and the Red River Archaeology group that supported us and allows us to bring just a few people nattering about archaeology uh, in, into your ears every every couple of weeks and also into your eyes because we're also on YouTube. Like, the episode we have today is one of these enhanced ones. And look, he tells a little bit about whom we're interviewing today. We have Hannah Sims. She works for the company. She does an awful lot of work. She's in the graphics department, but she's kind of a, a jack of all trades, I guess, which you'll see in this, um, this interview. It, it's absolutely fantastic. It's entertaining. Entertaining. It's fun. She covers a, a massive variety of topics, and um, yeah, I think you're going to like it. Yeah, if you are interested in just art, graphics, how we interpret archaeology, you see how we draw the physical drawing of the amazing, say, organic early medieval, early modern artifacts that we discover, you'll hear about all the time on the news and you wonder where they get the nice illustrations from. It's people like Hannah, who's our graphics and IT manager for our group, are drawing them and are managing the teams that create these amazing, and they're actually, they're bits of artwork as well. And if you see the podcast on YouTube, you'll see some of Hannah's just really talented work. And she's a great laugh. She's a lovely person. And uh, it's a very funny, and it's just a way, if you want to get into archaeology, if you want to get into graphics, if you want to get that side of things, this is the podcast to listen to. This is it, the first episode of season three with Hannah Sims. Well, welcome to the Shindig, Hannah. And I suppose the, the the question I want to ask first is just like, why why archaeology? You know, why archaeology? <laughs> very, very tiring. <laughs> we all love it. But you know, how what what got you started in archaeology? Maybe mm. tell us a little bit about your first experiences of it and how you got started studying it. Okay. Um, why archaeology? Always a great question. I think it's just because history was always my favorite subject when I was a kid. I used to love really love medieval history and like castles, horses, Martin Bailey, all that sort of stuff. I used to love learning about that stuff. And I used to draw castles all the time. And it was just really my favorite thing about school. Um, do you remember those do you remember those books you'd get with like the castles that would were cut in half and you could see all the different rooms inside and what people were yes. doing? I used to love those things and I would be fascinated by them and spend hours looking at them and then drawing my own ones. Um, so that was kind of, yeah, just always, always loved history. That was kind of the basic thing. And then as I grew up, I suppose I just, uh, I became 
more convinced that I could do it as a career. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's not something that most people think of as a career, for sure. Um, but the kind of history you do in school wasn't really what I enjoyed. Like, for, I don't know if you did any history in school here, Luke, but the mm. junior cert, you do lots of different types of history from different periods and different places. And it's really cool. You might do the Romans and the medieval and all sorts of stuff. Um, but the leaving cert history is all like modern, modern European kind of yeah. history. And it's not really in Ireland, it's modern European in. and sort of um, Irish, the Irish Republic forming and that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Which is very interesting. And I really yeah. did enjoy it, but it wasn't kind of anything I was interested in pursuing academically or further or anything. So when it came to go to college, I knew I wanted to study ancient history and then archaeology was sort of a natural companion to that. I think I also did like geography and English in my first year, but I knew I wanted to do the archaeology and the ancient classics, which is what I kept on to do my mm. degree. Um, Can I jump then, in there and ask, does, does yeah. geography and English help with something like history? Like being able to play I, things and write about them and... I actually do think so. Like, I, I remember thinking that, you know, the geography, the physical side of geography would be kind of helpful for archaeology, just understanding the landscape and thinking about how it was, you know, formed and how it people interact with it. You do study that kind of sociological side of geography as well as the physical side of geography. Yeah. So I thought that would be quite interesting and helpful. Uh, and then English was just something I enjoyed. And, you know, you kind of get some of those critical thinking skills maybe and analytical skills perhaps place names as well just thinking formation of of words mm. and you know, that's something mm. for archaeology is obviously very important and, and you do a lot of work in maps now as well as i yeah. imagine you a lot yeah. of Exactly. And I did always really enjoy that part of, our, of of geography as well. So it's not something that I consciously thought of at the time, but I remember sort of thinking it would be a good support subject. Mm. Um, and I, again, I really enjoyed it, but I always wanted to do the archaeology and the ancient classics specifically. Um, you know, I think the kind of media that I consumed when I was young that really interested me were had a blend of sort of history and fantasy I suppose those kind of you know books I used to read would be a lot of history and fantasy blended kind of books uh the me the other media I consume like I don't know think Indiana Jones think Xena Warrior Princess that kind of genre blend in my brain that really did inspire me it fired my imagination so learning more about the ancient history the real ancient history behind that was definitely a driving force for why I wanted to study archaeology and I mean, I just think you're just saying that there. I mean, Tolkien, someone that, I mean, because mm. I mean, one of the sites we'll discuss today is a great early medieval site. And obviously, Tolkien is being influenced by the early medieval Britain and Irish sort of world. Um, yeah. is, was Tolkien that sort of thing, that sort of blending of reality? I mean, obviously, he was an English professor as well. Yeah. Was that the kind of thing that interested you growing up? Absolutely. Yeah. Lord of the Rings is one of my favorite books as, as, as a teenager. I don't know how many times I've read that. Um, and yeah. I, I I hadn't really thought about it until now, but definitely that kind of crossover between history and fantasy is absolutely something that was very formative in me, for sure. And Xena yeah. Warrior Princess had a grip oh, on people massive, in the 90s. Well. Massive fan of Xena Warrior Princess. I cannot underestimate <laughs> the influence I'll just say, on me. <laughs> my, um, my family in New Zealand um, bought a plot of land that had been used. The farmer was selling it off after they finished filming Xena War Warrior really? Princess. So they, their, their house is now built on part of the old well it was lovely countryside um, yeah. and you know, they're on a, a ridge somewhere there and just well, outside jealous. you know what if i ever retire i want to go to new zealand because it's xena and it's lord of the rings and yeah. it's just the the place to go isn't it yeah 
Her, her armor's in the Tainau Museum in Wellington as well, so it's part of, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you have to that's, go. that's a bucket, a bucket list, yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, you're a teenager, you've mm-hmm. been influenced by these sort of historical fantasy mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. sort of works. Mm-hmm. Then you're deciding, you know, your your university, and you you go to Edinburgh, I think, to, to study? Yes, yeah, after I finished um, my undergrad in Cork, um, I, I was kind of torn in two directions because they had recently introduced the masters in osteo there in UCC, and I had a really great three years in UCC. It's a great place to live, great place to study, um, really good department there. So I was really tempted to do that. Um, but I also, you know, I live in Cork. My mum's half an hour down the road. It wasn't really a stretch or a challenge for me to live here, and I wanted a bit of an adventure, I suppose, something a bit new and challenging. And Edinburgh is a place, again, I'd always wanted to go because it's got that really visible history everywhere. And it's just a completely different sort of place to live than where I'd grown up in rural Ireland. So, um, yeah, it was kind of a the adventure part at that time. <laughs> I'm not so adventurous anymore, but at the time when I was 21 and wanted something a bit different, I kind of I ended up going to Edinburgh instead of staying in Cork um, just, just to, to have a change of scenery and to try something new. And I think academic mobility, being also an academic myself, it's kind of like you're you're certainly advised. Certainly, a lot of my North American friends will say it's kind of really encouraged in North America is that you you do your undergraduate, and then you may also wanting to go back to say Cork, whatever, to do a PhD or further study, but you'll go somewhere to do your master just because you're just completely different ways of thinking about archaeology in the past and, and different departments. Yeah, absolutely. There's the kind of the kind of archaeology they talk about there in Edinburgh was completely different from what we we, we learned as an undergrad in, in UCC, which was very much focused on Irish archaeology. So going over to Edinburgh, like my professor there, uh, he was very interested in Iran and that kind of area of archaeology. That was his specialism. But there was all sorts of other people there from, yeah, from around Britain, from America um, and from other countries who were coming to do a wide variety of, of master's degrees um, of subjects that they had already prepared. <laughs> I remember starting and I was doing a, a taught master's as opposed to a, what do they call the other one? There's a taught master's and then there's kind of a, a research. Oh, like a re- research. Yeah, yeah, research yeah. where you get taught less and just do more yes, of a longer exactly. dissertation sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think a, a good few of the people on my master's program were coming in as a research master's. So they already had these theses titled in their head ready to go. And I was just like ambling along, sort of going, oh, you know, I'm going to go to a few of these classes, a few of those classes and see what see what interests me. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, yeah, it was a learning curve. but It was really good for me. And um, I really enjoyed my time there as well. It was yeah, it was really, really good. In choosing something like uh, a master's, mm. the subject that you kind of have to pick for that, is there a pressure in trying to find I kind of felt that at the start because I mean yeah. I, the 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 masters was just a classical archaeology. I was classical archaeology. It wasn't the classics. It was classical archaeology. So I was doing ancient history and archaeology as a kind of a, a joint taught masters. Mm. Um, but some of the other people were coming in with like very specific uh, ideas that they had already probably prepared from their undergrad that they wanted to pursue even further. Um, so yeah, I remember feeling a little sort of oh, should I have been doing that already (laughs) at the time and then it but it was it was fine it was in the end it was fine because I I I went about it a slightly different way Uh, and I only had to do a uh, I think I think my thesis had to be was only 15,000 words instead of 
whatever they had to do. So it was a slightly different um, that's all. structure. <laughs> well, that's kind of small in comparison to yeah. um, some of the other some of the other things that they have to do. But I had to do continuous assessment along the the year, um, and I think my my thesis in, ended up being about Roman history and our Roman contact with Ireland. Anyway, so I kind of blended the two. Mm. Um, don't ask me about it now because I cannot remember. Yeah, I was going to ask. I should have reread it. <laughs> Damn it. That's all the rest of our questions gone. So. It wasn't we'll just pause just show for people stopping. listening. We've just paused it now for a week. Uh, Hannah's gone off to repeat her thesis. I don't even know and if I have a copy of it. So. And we're back. <laughs> I don't even know if I have a copy of it anymore. Yeah, it wasn't anything that's going to set the world on fire, but it was something that I just, you know, it was a kind of a natural progression of all the different things I had learned and just... Um, yeah, I already kind of knew at that stage that I wasn't going to go into academia. A lot of my um, co uh, colleagues in class were going to be pursuing PhDs or going into teaching or becoming TAs or whatever. So a lot of them were wanting to stick in academia and I already knew I didn't want to do that. So, um, yeah, so it was, yeah, it was, it was enough to just kind of get it done, get it out of the way. And then I took a little break for a few months before I kind of tried to find a proper job in archaeology because I was burnt out but you know when you finish college you kind of you're like oh well what do I do now I have to be a real person now um and I you know I haven't had to really think about that very much yet but um I was really lucky then because there was a lot of work going on in Ireland and I had no trouble just applying for a job and they were crying out for site assistance even ones who had no experience like me um just this is the sort of Celtic for people who don't know. This is sort of Celtic yeah. Tiger sort of period of well, a bit um, a bit later. We're talking. I finished college in in Edinburgh in two thousand six, so it would have been maybe early two thousand seven. By the time I came back to Ireland, I sort of took maybe six months just working a, a crappy job in Edinburgh for a while and taking it easy, um, and then I got a real job back here in Ireland and started work out in the field in Galway. Ah oh, well, I think this is. I, I love it, uh, Luke. When the the interviewees naturally lead us into the questions, I can just sit back. Um, yeah. So what what was 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 like, what was that first job? Could you tell us a little bit about your first job, your first experiences? And you know, we we've all worked. Um, I know Luke as well. We've worked in the field, and it's often not the most conducive to wanting to stay in that career when you get <laughs> rained on and snowed on. Um, and the work is always great. It's fun. And it's the camaraderie that a lot of the time we do it for. But yeah. you know, you've got to get through, I think, that initial period of kind of shock. Yeah. As you're saying, you're just coming from a more relaxed job and then yep. suddenly you're you're in the field. So tell us a little bit about that first job. Okay. The first job was in Galway. It was on the Galway to Ballinasloe N6 road scheme. Uh, and I got put onto a site that was a hilltop um, enclosure site. So part of it was an Iron Age hilltop enclosure, but there was also some ring forts on there as well and a few other bits and pieces. Um, and it was, it must have been early 2007. So we're talking midwinter. We're talking going from an easy shop job to intense physical work out on site in the middle of winter <laughs> and that's a Galway um, winter as well Galway winter <laughs> um, a, a gentle handle. Atlantic breeze <laughs> <laughs> gentle yes sweeping down um, and um, and just trying to trying to figure out what the hell I was doing and um, why the hell I chose this career luckily I had a really good supervisor on that first site um, who really took me under his wing and showed me how to do all the recording and you know 
why we do things a certain way on site. And I learned an awful lot. I probably learned more in that first three months on site than I did in my entire college career in terms of actually commercial archaeology and how it works and what you do. Um, I think it's looking back, I wish I had done some summer work on a, on a site somewhere in the middle of, of college, but I was working just to, uh, you know, make up. I know just you said summer college. there because immediately you're <laughs> summer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I would recommend it to anyone who's, you know, who's studying archaeology. Um, if they can get some work during the summer on, yeah. on break to, to do it, because you learn so much more on site so much quickly, so much more quickly um, than you do just in the classroom. I think As a non-archaeologist, yeah. there is a, like commercial archaeology isn't there's not a separate module for that in college or anything, is there? It's not. There wasn't when I was there. We had to do in UCC, we had various um, modules about different things, you know, osteo and certain hmm. periods of history. And there were some there was actually even a module about the history of archaeology as a discipline and, you know, various things like that. And we did have to do one week of a like a student dig uh, during the course of one of our years. I can't remember if that was second year or third year. Might have been second year. And then in third year, we also had to do a, a long year long project where we went out to different types of sites and recorded them ourselves based on what we had learned um, and, and submit a big year long project with like, I can't remember, was it like six or 10 different types of sites that we had to visit and photograph and record and research and that sort of stuff. So we did have to do some practical research and archaeology, um, archaeological work as a student, but it wasn't anything the same as being a, on a commercial yeah. dig. It's, yeah. That change um, must be frightening then. <laughs> when going to the academic, <laughs> the, as you say, Galway winter. Galway winter. Yeah, it was. I mean, I don't remember fear, really. I do remember, I remember <laughs> after traveling back that site the first week, my fingers being like, we're waking up one morning and my fingers were just locked in this claw <laughs> position and I, I had to like physically break them like this because they were Ooh. like just they were spasmed into that shape but I, that was the only time that ever really happened to me and apparently it does happen to quite a few people that they're not used to trap I don't know yeah. if you've ever done any troweling but it's yeah it it locks up your muscles in the in the middle of winter anyway um so yeah, so the the physical side of it was definitely the hardest part. Um, but we were young, you know, we were younger, we were fitter. It was, it was okay. <laughs> and I did have a, and like you say, Tom, it's the it's the camaraderie and the people that you work with, because I had a really great, really great supervisor, and um, it was a it was a good good crew. We were we were living and um, living and staying in Galway, driving out to site. You know, we we bung someone ten quid per week to ride share out to site and we went out to the pub on a Thursday and it was a very much a kind of you got into the routine and the rhythm of the site and learning to work with people um yeah it was it was a really good site I really did enjoy it and uh we were there for probably about six months um before we moved on and uh that was when I went to a different type of site completely was when we went to Mullingar it was a different company I worked for and it was an urban site in a car park in the middle of Mullingar. And uh, that was that was where I sort of spent a good bit of time learning a lot more about sort of stratigraphy and more complex archaeology because the, the environment on a big rural site is one thing, but in a more confined space in an urban dig, it's completely different because you're going from the top down and in a confined area. So the, the difference between that was also very good for me, the difference between open air rural archaeology and then going to a, a more confined urban site for the for the sort of second big project that I worked on. 
And did you find yourself just naturally across these two jobs beginning to sort of gravitate towards you know, what you do now in terms of graphics? I mean, we'll be showing people in the YouTube version of this, so you know, <clears throat> do watch it. So it's, a, it's a completely different version of the podcast. So we have some examples of, of Hannah's drawing, and she's a brilliant artist. This never mind archaeology, technical drawing, <laughs> whatever, just as an artist is, is fantastic. So you've obviously had natural talent. You said, you know, from a young age, you were you mm -hmm. were you were drawing and particularly drawing historical sort of you know uh, related images. Mm. Was this something that started naturally to happen by that second dig, or is that classic? I've heard when speaking to um, uh, Oxford archaeologist Adam Parsons when he said he realised that you could sit sit inside with a, a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> he thought think, that's the that's yeah. The <laughs> I think anyone who has worked out on site has quickly realized, oh, you know what? If I need to do this recording inside where it's warm, I'm just going to just make sure that's done properly. You know, I'm going to take my time and make sure that's done well. Um, yeah, no, I, I know that feeling. Um, but I've, honestly, no, not at the time. I did always enjoy uh, the drawing part of it because um, yeah, it was... I have that kind of brain only at work, but I have the kind of brain that I really enjoy organizing things and making things neat and tidy. I wish I had that in other areas of my life. I don't. It's just at work. But at the same time, that does mean I really do enjoy making sense of something that's a bit of a mess and trying to make it um, clearer. And graphics is a really good way of doing that because you take all this complex information and you try to condense it and clarify it and make it accessible to everybody um, and support the text that you're you're working with. Um, but at the time, no, I was I was on site there for a while, and there were a few people who were kept on to do post-ex work after that site, after the excavation ended, and I was one of them. Um, so we did a lot of post-ex work there, which was just mainly soil sieving, fines labeling, that sort of stuff. Um, and that was another really good experience um, because, again, the more you do post-ex, the more you realize what what you should be doing on site and why, you know, why certain things yeah. are recorded a certain way. <laughs> and the the reason we need to be as, as precise as we can on site is to, is to be as um, comprehensive as we can in post-ex. And one thing follows on from the next um i'm not yeah i'm not explaining it very well but you know what i mean it's sort do you of, think that would be a good thing then i mean this is a wider question that mm. you know everybody does a little bit of the whole process you know maybe yeah. when they're when they're in a commercial unit and that would be because yeah i think sometimes you know why do we have to you know you, yeah you write you, you you have to write things clearly but you're freezing your fingers or yeah. cool, but then then you once you've seen that on the other end you sort of think i can't read that context number it's, now so exactly the same the same ways that you learn so much when you start recording on site after being in college if you then move on into post x and you have to deal with an archive that isn't correctly you know cross-referenced or the numbers are wrong or the scales aren't correct things like that you start to realize oh you can't just say, oh, it'll do. It's it's good enough. You've got to, you go back and you, if you don't record it correctly on site, it's much more difficult to correct that later on. So that's a valuable lesson that I learned there. Um, and then after I finished there, again, I moved to Carlo, which is where I started working with Rubicon. It was Headland at the time, but they rebranded to Rubicon, but that's when I started working with them. I think it must have been back in, it must have been later in 2007. Again, they were on that big road scheme, the N9, N10, Carlo to Kilcullen, uh, which was massive. It had over 100 sites. Um, and it was on there one were, of them. 
yeah you were on one of them <laughs> yeah. yeah it's yeah that's where I started um getting to know the people that we still work with now because people yeah. have moved in and out of the company um that's how archaeology works I suppose you move you move where the work is but you get to know people over the years and they same faces start popping up mm. um but that was the first site that I worked with for for Headland slash Rubicon and um that was one of the it's a good good kind of microcosm of my career there actually because I started as a site assistant I moved on to a few other sites, but then I went back into Postex with, with Headland and I worked on Postex for that site. And then later on, I ended up doing illustrations and graphics for that site when I moved into graphics. So it's kind of a that that one site that I started on in Carlo is, is one of the ones that kind of always sticks out in my brain because I followed it all the way through site assistant, post ex-assistant and then illustrator. So I really like that one sticks in my brain. I have a similar one with that in that I filmed a video on site when I worked mm. in Carlo, um, I put it up on YouTube and was asked to take it down because <laughs> it was it was just a video of us messing. And now I yeah. I make videos for the company. So yeah, we've all come just, full circle. We've all come full circle, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, it's it's really good when you can like this company is actually very good at like finding the little skills that you have and using mm. them, which I really appreciate because. It means you can really develop um, things you're interested in. Yeah, and that's why we're on this podcast now is because yeah. with with John Skeen Tanaya, you've mm -hmm. you know, an idea they ran with it. It was it was successful, and Luke and I have sort of tried to add grace notes to that. Just that idea of having a nice chat about archaeology, and yeah. I think you know that you know I think the the strength of it is. This is an, you know, you're one of our colleagues, but we're just as happy to talk to Adam Parsons as, as mm -hmm. talk to Anna Sims on, on, on this <laughs> one. It's just because there's a genuine interest within the company for archaeology and, and for, for outreach and for getting it out there. So, um, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. The, the company is very, very strong in that. And that, that's, you know, why we're award winning. Um, well done again. <laughs> <laughs> Look how happy he is to say that. Yeah. <laughs> Subtle drop there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the, the logo. I'll get make look to make the logo appear here now. Um, uh, I suppose on that 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 job, the the N nine, the N ten. Mm. Presumably, that was a multi period sort of site as well. Yeah, yeah. The the the, the particular one I'm thinking of was. Um, it was on one side of a river. So there was kind of a wetland area next to the river. And then there was a dryland area slightly, slightly upslope, very, very slightly. Um, but we had on that site, we had, I think we had a, a bit of Neolithic. Um, we had some early medieval. We had some Iron Age, some Bronze Age uh, and the, some some modern bits and pieces as well. There was all sorts on that site. It was a really, really good one. Um, I um, And that one was really good, like I say, to follow through on because we got to see the finds being cleaned up and conserved in Postex. I got to do some digitizing of the plans and finds illustration on that site. Um, and now we're finally doing some publication graphics um, for that scheme uh, where a monograph will be put out, I hope next year um, for that one. So it really is kind of a start to finish a snapshot of my career so far. Um, it's not necessarily the best site in the entire world, but it was very interesting. It had, you know, a, a cool pit circle and some ring ditches and a medieval trackway, uh, some some burials, some like wooden artifacts. Yeah, it had a bit of everything, actually. It was a pretty good site in the end, now that I think of it. It had quite a lot. And do you, do you I mean, archaeologists, we all have favourite sites and favourite peers. Mm. Did you 
have a favorite site or a favorite period or i mean probably it's the same thing or there's a there's a is an early medieval or whatever site that you just think i like drawing the kind of things that come out of it i'm interested in the period is is there anything if you know your ideal site that you could or you've maybe been on your ideal site already my ideal site oh well i mean the thing that keeps us going is always the curiosity isn't it the what are we going to find next that's the thing that keeps us going so there's always that anticipation at the start of every single site anything mm, i really enjoyed doing we're, we're just doing it now but we did a a, a, a dig in buttevant um town and it was the medieval main the main street was being dug up to be resurfaced and have new lights and stuff put in so they had to monitor the works and then we had to excavate a lot of the archaeology that was found on the main street um, and that was a really cool site because again it was a constrained area within the confines of the roadway and there was all sorts of interconnecting bits and pieces going on we're trying to find things that people have been speculating about for ages like where the town walls actually went where the gatehouses were for the medieval town um things like that and we had a couple of really nice finds come out of there as well like the gold posy ring with the inscription around the inside which i got to photograph during postex which is really nice um and yeah that, that was a really cool site i didn't actually dig on it myself but i liked the um the illustrations for that one because it was a lot more complex and i really had to work with the the director to <laughs> to make the to make it clear what was going on and where because it was so so complex and that's still kind of ongoing we're still doing the final reports for that so um to to be <laughs> to be disseminated yet but it is a really cool one i like that one i suppose this is a good this is a good stage to add so what 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 is your sort of job at the moment then mm. you know or if, if i'm a client listening in what is it you do what is it that we do that that's uh, at the road of archaeology group that's especially good and and you know and you know your skills that you you mm. bring to it and the people that, that work with you that work with us okay well currently my job is the graphics and it manager for the company i've been doing that since i took over from my predecessor who left last year um and i currently manage about five people I think doing various bits and pieces um some people who are doing some survey work some people who do graphics work um some people who do bits and pieces of website websites and social media um I also try to keep the um the IT structure of the company um robust and secure um that's something that I've been learning in the last year because it was something that I hadn't done prior to this role I'm I'm working on now. Um, and historically, I worked really closely with my predecessor, Jonathan Miller, before he left. Uh, and he taught me a lot of what I know now, um, a lot of graphics techniques, the software. He would have been, he was the graphics manager for many, many years here before he left. Um, so he was the one who taught me most of what I know. Um, and our, our other colleague, Sarah Nyland, who is a great uh, artifact illustration, um, uh, illustrator, should I say, she taught me how to do finds illustrations. So uh, working with them closely for many years, my main job was things like site plans, mapping, finds illustration, photography, uh, all that sort of stuff. And I think just since I've taken over from, from Jonsky, I'm having to do a bit more pro project management. I'm having to do a bit more uh, people management um, and also thinking about how to improve um, what we do across the board, what, what our strengths and weaknesses are for our selling points. Um, yeah, that's something that's a new challenge for me, I suppose, in this role, because I've gotten used to over the years 
doing graphics on a day-to-day -day basis and the, the, the everyday kind of graphics that an archaeology company needs for various reports and publications, I got very comfortable doing all of that. So the new challenges in the past year have definitely been um, learning more about the project management side of things and the supporting the company structure, the business structure from an IT standpoint. Um, but also, yeah, learning to sell ourselves for um, for what we do, because it's it seems obvious to us what we do, but you, you kind of forget that a lot of people don't really know what commercial archaeology is and what we offer. Um, and, you know, it might be just a tiny, small development that someone needs help with. It might be a multi-million dollar, multi-million dollar euro, should I say, multi-million euro scheme um, that, uh, that we have to have a massive uh, staff for. So things really do fluctuate, don't they, in this, in this game? Things, it might be really quiet for a little while and then it'll be crazy busy for months on end. Um, and then a project might go quiet for a while and then the post costs get approved and all of a sudden you're you're back into a really crazy busy uh schedule of postex work um which is different you know different from the site work so yeah i, I mean we were just working on a major tender recently where you, yeah. you were doing a graphic that i can't remember the name of that was kind of like flow <laughs> of where people's work it's relationships were an organogram yes an organogram <laughs> yeah for tenders yeah that's the kind of thing that um that's that's the beauty of my job my my job is never the same two days in a row one day i'm doing just normal graphics for a testing job or an excavation and the next day i'm doing a poster for a, a site talk that a that a director is giving i might be doing graphics for a tender which might be more business orientated or i might be doing i don't know some website design the next day there's my job is so varied at the moment. It's really difficult to kind of <laughs> quantify everything. But it's the main thing about it is is that it's collaborative. I think it's we work as a team because you can't do it any other way. It has to be you have to be good at working with people um, because you have to interpret so much different data in in so many different ways for so many different reasons targeting different audiences that you have to be able to just um yeah work as part of a team and luckily we have a good team here um now now i just want to <laughs> i'm going to give luke the, the next question or the decision on the next question do you want to talk more about organograms organograms and project management or would you like to talk about maybe a very cool early medieval site and is it balmakiri let's talk a, cool medieval a, sites please <laughs> cool medieval, okay the votes cool the votes fight. are in um <laughs> that's fair enough so, yeah can you tell us it's so this for people who don't know um mm -hmm. we've been obviously we, we we plan these things sometimes it doesn't sound like it but look and i <laughs> plan these things and we were asking hannah you know for examples of some some of her work that she was proud of or mm -hmm. you know showed off the range of skills that her and uh the the company can 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 provide to clients and one of the first ones you said was the work on the N22 McCroom bypass and mm -hmm. a particular site called, is it Ballymakiri? Is that yes. the? Yes, that's the one? Mm -hmm. That's the townland, yeah. So could you tell us just maybe just a wider view, the project N22 and the works yep. that we do in these big linear infrastructure projects and then focus in on this this particular site. And it's a, I promise you, um, <laughs> we will have amazing images of it. And we'll it's have some nice images. Right. Yes. So yeah, Hannah, take it away, please. 
Um, the N22 was the um, Ballyverney to McCroom bypass, and we it was split into three different lots, and we won lot one and lot three. So we did sort of the northern end and the southern end. Uh, and along that route, we did we did the full set of archaeological works, which starts at um, testing. So you test the whole route just to see what archaeology is potentially there. Usually we're targeting known geophysical anomalies because the geophys will have been done ahead of time. So we would have tested that route, identified archaeology where it was found, and then turned those testing areas into excavation areas surrounding the whatever areas of archaeology were discovered. Uh, and along this route, one of the particular sites we found was this really nice, we knew it was there ahead of time anyway because of the historic mapping. It was a ring fort, um, a known ring fort, an RMP site, they call it, um, which in Ireland means a recorded monument or place. Um, so this was a known site um, that had been incorporated into field boundaries in the rural landscape. Uh, and the CPO of the, the new road was going straight through it. Um, the, unfortunately, the ring fort had been, I'll, when you see the illustrations, you'll see, um, you can look at it on the historic mapping and you can see it, the full circle of the, the ring fort on the first edition historic mapping from like the mid 1800s. And then by the time the late 1800s, early 1900s rolls around and you get onto the 25 edition mapping, all that's left is really a corner within the boundary of the fields. So it had been ploughed out at some point in the late 1800s and only a little corner of it was left above ground. Um, so the CPO kind of snagged the sort of southwest half, not half, third even of the ring fort. Um, and we knew it was there. So we dug up the ditches and some of the internal features um, and just sort of excavated what we could see there. Um, and it was it was a really interesting site because it it's one of those ones where you know you're going to get a good bit of archaeology. You know you're going to find something interesting and maybe you'll turn up something that we didn't know about it before. Um, yeah, if you look at the site plan as well, because I've, like I say, we've got some nice images. The site plan, we managed to phase it uh, according to the dated evidence in PostX. So the way it works for graphics, from a graphics point of view, let's look at it this way. On site, you'll get people who are doing the survey. So they'll survey all the different features that are excavated. And they'll also have people who are hand planning to a proper scale on permatrace drawings on site. So we take those two things in post-ex. We have the survey data, which gives us all the different coordinates and height levels. And we have the hand-drawn plans that we can then use to, to produce digital illustrations of the site plan with both of those elements working together. So we have that, and then we can use the post-ex information, such as datable charcoal material, wood, hazelnut shell, finds whatever whatever's coming out of the site we can use that then to phase the different features on site and then we produce a phase plan of the features depending on how they date from the mesolithic neolithic whatever onwards so that's um that's what we did for this one and it came out really nicely because we had a little bit i think a teeny tiny bit of mesolithic dating it wasn't it wasn't secure dating though it was a disturbed date but it was still cool that there was potentially mesolithic activity in the area then we had the, a small bit of Neolithic, a small bit of Iron Age, and a main, mainly the the, the uh, medieval ring fort, which was really interesting. Um, yeah, so that was. Can you tell us a little bit, just for people who maybe don't know the phenomenon of of particularly early medieval ring forts in Ireland, the, the sort of sheer number <laughs> and the sort of myths and the legends associated with them as well. I was chatting to Luke earlier about 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 the fairies 
So varies, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, if you'd both like to, from an Irish perspective, tell me about, because I was saying it's a bit like the Icelandic, you know, where you don't disturb the fairies and the ring forts. Yeah, there's definitely people who 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 do that. Like mm-hmm. ring forts, for people who don't know, there's they're one of the most common um, archaeological features of the Irish landscape. There's over 40,000 known examples of them across the island. Um, they're thought to be mainly early medieval farmsteads of the well-to-do, some of them being more defensible than others. Uh, and they have certain features that are always associated, well, not always, but that can be associated with them, such as souterrains, as well as, you know, medieval houses. They might just be um, animal enclosures. It's, you know, they could have had multiple uses. Um, and it has been, they have been called fairy circles for a very long time, I believe. Mm-hmm. And there is definitely people, there's, I know that where my mum lives, there's a ring fort in the house behind us, in, sorry, in the field behind us. Um, and the farmer who owns the land wouldn't, wouldn't go into it because he's like, oh no, you wouldn't go in and disturb the fairies inside there. He's an old fella. Um, but yeah, they, they, they're a massively common part of the landscape, but they're still sort of not necessarily understood by a lot of people. The fairy element of it always interests me and the mythology around these things. How do we know how that came about? Like where this element of the fairies came into these? Do you know, I, I don't know, you know, um, that's something. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know. It's just been around for a very long time. Um, yeah, it's also I mean, I think you get cross cultural parallels. If you've heard about the San, Sandy Borg um, sort of ring for it as well, which was a slaughter in the migration period, so sort of like fifth fifth, sixth century in, mm. in the island of, of of Gotland. And there were folk stories about that as like it was never touched or anything because it was it was known culturally mm. as a sort of bad energy sort of place and people didn't go near it. So of course mm. when they excavated it, it was like, you know, people were where they fell when they were yeah. slaughtered. So I think you know, because we're very scientific archaeologists as well, we kind of forget that the power of people you know, your granny telling you a story because yeah. she turned it from her granny and, and, and yeah. going back. Maybe that's an element to it, you guys. Maybe you so. There's also this like older hill forts and things from Iron Age, um, the Iron Age period, which maybe they saw as, you know, they, they, it would have been old to them. So it would have been a mystical sort of old ancient place. Because um, there's a theory that, you know, medieval ring forts were kind of an evolution, I suppose, of Iron Age hill forts. Um, just in, but it that's it's it's hard to, you, for all the ring forts that we have in Ireland. So many of them, not a massive percentage of them have actually really been excavated, have they? There's because they're known, people avoid them, so they don't have to deal with the archaeology. So we they're on we, private we might get land one, quite often too, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they'd be on farmers' lands within. Yeah, yeah in, a lot of them do get incorporated into field boundaries, um, but even the ones that don't. If you're building a road, you would go around it, wouldn't you? Because you, do, yeah. you don't want to deal with the archaeology if you can avoid it. So even though we have a lot of them, maybe not a massive percentage of them have been mm. excavated. I don't know the numbers, though, to, to you know. To well, if there's that, like 40-odd thousand, the percentage yeah. is going to be tiny. It's got to be low. It's got to be low. It is possible that if they're excavated, you might find a body mm-hmm. with wings and <laughs> it is you possible know, is what we're saying you know you never you never can rule it out can you especially if you get something like a souterrain which is an underground tunnel that mm. goes underneath a, a ring fort for for storage or for security um but yeah it's always exciting when you find things like that because again the, those are they get fairly 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 deep fairly big and you never know what, what's going to come out of them 
Yeah. Well, that, I mean, I'm just thinking in terms of content, so that would be fantastic. Mm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, go, 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 going back to the archaeology, I was impressed with this site because I think you had 18 radiocarbon dates and 12 mm -hmm. out of 18 were quite a tight, sort of eight, mm -hmm. nine century sort of period. Is, yeah, which is a nice a kind of... more about, yeah, that, that, that sort of, yeah. It's quite a nice date range because it's uh, slightly, slightly earlier um, once you get into... The later medieval period it's less interesting i think um but that's that's a nice tight date range and i think i wonder if it means there's a when you look at the the landscape around it as well there's there there are other um ring forts in the area so you've got to imagine it's not just a lone farmstead in the middle of nowhere we're talking about a landscape with other ones available or lived in or used or reused over many hundreds of years um when you look at the that's another thing we do with graphics actually if i'm circling back to graphics here <laughs> um for for the publication that will come out for, for this road scheme we looked at the whole landscape within a couple of kilometers of this site and we plotted all the ring forts that were known from the early medieval period here and you can see clusters of them around um around the landscape and you can see that there was just a wide number of them um so you've got to kind of think of don't think of one one site in isolation try to imagine the whole landscape around it and how people lived in it and moved in it um and you know interacted with each other as well um, and that surely tells us quite a lot then if this is quite a co very common monument that mm. and it's sort of def defensible would is this yeah. sort of then will lead you and because we'll talk about the reconstruction drawings as well um, as well as that great map of the the distribution, mm -hmm. but is this quite a fractious landscape? Then, if you feel the need to have basically a, a maybe a, a boundary and ditch around your, mm -hmm. your your house, and this is at mid ninth century, where we know that what the Vikings are doing at that period is going mm -hmm. in. They're, they're they're going in and saying, "Well, there's lots of people fighting. There's lots of slaves being taken, and lots of mm -hmm. these." kingdoms battling into each other and the over kings is mm -hmm. that you know having you know spent a lot of detail on this site is that the kind of impression that you would get from the wider landscape possibly i mean what was interesting about this site was um it had kind of in the the part that we excavated had a, an entrance way at the southeastern side and the entrance way had kind of a stone paving and some posts around it which suggests maybe some sort of structure over the entrance way perhaps a lookout platform or a gated structure maybe it's hard to know without any other evidence but you could speculate um so if you speculated that there was maybe a lookout platform there or some way of cutting off people from accessing the inside of the ring fort you would you would speculate that yeah perhaps we're looking at a sort of a slightly defendable position here um it, plus there was a bank on the inside of this one as well it was a ditch and bank on the inside you could definitely see that from the remains that were left on the internal features um so a bank with perhaps a palisade perhaps a gated or some sort of structure look out structure over the entrance yeah that's that's a valid interpretation i think yeah and i mean i think now that i mean it's interesting cycling back around to what you're talking about earlier that you've had the experience of rural sites and this is very much a rural site but mm. also your second one was was an urban site so i think mm -hmm. i'd now like to talk about another example that we talked about in preparation for this was the the work on the lewis cross city the main mm. infrastructure project for that in, in broadstone can yeah. you tell us just again 
about about the work that we do for yeah. uh, TII Transport Infrastructure Ireland and and, and, and various councils in in yeah. Ireland on, on infrastructure that works and and on an ur- in an urban setting. In an urban, yeah, absolutely. Because so it's, it's it's a bit different from doing a road scheme across the the open countryside. This is for the Lewis um, Cross City Works which were ongoing for the last few years and are all now complete. But we were looking at monitoring the areas where the Lewis tracks were going to go. Um, and we were charged with excavating certain sites where there was archaeology located um, due to monitoring those areas during the um, during the, the works. Um, what do you call it? Like pre, pre-engineering works or whatever you call them. There was a few sites that were identified. And one of them was uh, at Broadstone, which was the Broadstone Harbour and Canal in front of it's it's literally where the Broadstone stop is now on the Lewis um, platforms. So underneath there, there was a big site of the old harbour, the old canal, and some pre-harbour features underneath all of that as well. So the st- I'll I'll hunt out some more images for this one because the the excavation went quite deep here because it had to go way below, way to the bottom of the old harbour, and then beneath that as well, um, just to clear out all of the the wetland and the uh, yeah all the all the all the archaeology that was there it was it was fairly deep um and there's some really cool dramatic images of the broad stone building in the background with the big deep excavation um but that was i wasn't on site for this one but i got to do a lot of the um processing the survey and looking at the illustrations and uh, illustrating some finds for this site so i learned a little bit about it for for doing that <clears throat> and the really interesting parts of it were things like the the early phased features that we discovered were some sort of some cobbled laneways with like visible wheel ruts still left in them. And those were from like the pre-harbor days. So we're talking what, like the 1600s, the 1700s, going back way that far before it was even built. And then that land was sort of platformed and, you know, they rose it up so that they could build the harbor and the canal. Um, so there was like all these leveling deposits for building the, the harbor. And then on top of that, you can see all the harbour walls, the warehouse walls and various other bits and pieces that were built at that point as well. So we had really cool layers of archaeology on that site. Um, and I think this this site's interesting because you see it, this, you know, it's these urban palimpsests that you get layer <laughs> upon layer upon layer and it tells the mm. story of a much wider uh, uh, story, the parse uh, pro toto sort of thing is mm. the idea that you can see what Dublin was like when it was still, it was like a large town. And then you see this sort of, when it is becoming a city, when they're planning these major works. So the first linear infrastructure works, of course, are the uh, canal works. And then of course that gets, then the railway comes in. Mm-hmm. Of course, then it's the, the essentially the uh, Lewis system. Yeah. That, for people who don't know, it's uh, an urban tram uh, yeah. system uh, coming as well. So you know this is and this is something that you are then looking at, and you know you know that this modern infrastructure coming in, but you're seeing these layers of yeah. infrastructure. You know, the future was once canals. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> systems yeah. as well and so, it's still that, ongoing. It's a, we're just yeah. we're just in the current layer. That's all. I wonder what the yeah. layers will be in the future. And what was your, because you've got some amazing organic, um, we're going to get some images yes. of this, there's amazing organic survivals um, because it's such a deep site. Um, yeah. Presumably there's a water logging going on yes. as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about some of these amazing, I think early 19th century finds that you were getting? Yes, we had, um, because of the the nature of the 
the the wet wet mud basically that was left there after the canal was backfilled and filled in we have a nice uh anaerobic environment where we got some really cool uh what you call them um some like like wood leather textile yeah. that kind of stuff it's, really yeah. like, nice nice organic organic that's the word i'm looking for organic material so we had some really cool leather finds come out of this site and i was lucky enough to have to or to be able to illustrate them so they were sent off to the conservator and specialist um, for them to to have a look at to report on first and the way it works for commercial archaeology anyway is that often the specialist has looked at their assemblage of finds, whether it's wood or leather or whatever, they send back their report and they usually send back a recommendation of finds that they think should be photographed or illustrated or conserved or just deserving of further analysis. So after the specialist looked at the leather, um, I think there was over 500 leather artifacts from this site. Most of it was just like leather offcuts um, from cobbler cobbler workshops who must have been in the area. Um, and a lot of the leather stuff that came back were leather shoes. Um, but there were also some leather belts, um, lots of bits of offcuts that were sort of slightly interesting for different reasons, uh, and a cool leather Southwester hat, which was actually kind of a unique find. Um, that's not something that you see terribly often, but it was really, really cool. Um, so I had, yeah, I had a list of leather artifacts to illustrate. Um, and that was a sort of a very unique assemblage for me because those sorts of things don't come up very often, certainly not in that kind of quantity either. You might get the occasional, you know, in, on a wetland site out in the middle of nowhere, you might get some um, some wood, maybe some wooden artifacts, but mostly it's just like cut wood for forming, say, a trackway or something, or a trough or something like that. You know, you might find that out on wetland sites from different, from medieval or from prehistoric sites. Um, but this one was much more, you know, much more post-medieval, but it was also... The leather, the leather was really, really cool. And I really enjoyed, really enjoyed the challenge of illustrating those because it was something a bit different for me. Um because that's yeah, what so I want to say. This I mean, we'll I think we'll focus now on that Southwestern mm -hmm. hat, for example. And the shoes okay. are made because you're a brilliant, you're generally a brilliant artist. And it's definitely, I think we should probably have an online shot where we can sell prints of these. I actually <laughs> got a friend of a illustrator and he he gave me some and I've got them printed up and uh, I've got them uh, mm -hmm. uh in my mum's house as well and because oh. i mean they're just beautiful and i suppose yeah that's about the southwester hat is because obviously conservators are saying look this has also still got some of the waterproofing on it which i think was mm -hmm. resin and linseed oil so mm -hmm. very difficult to show though because it's difficult enough to show leather or, or wood but then you've got to show another this other texture as well in, in yeah. 2d how, yeah. I, can you tell us a little bit about how you did that specifically? And then maybe, again, we talked to Adam Parsons about this, about your sort of philosophy for drawing, because you're also interpreting as well. It's a very, yeah. very skill, isn't it? It's, it is, yeah. And it's something that you're just constantly learning more with each thing that you draw, basically. Um, for, for this one, the challenges were that they came to me, they weren't... I'm not sure if they had done any conservation work on them at that point, but I got them, they were still being stored in wet, um, in, in water, essentially, in, in the water. Usually we excavate them uh, and we keep them in the water from the site just to keep them in the same environment that they're used to being in. And then the conservator looks at them or the specialist looks at them. But when I got them, I just got these two massive tubfuls of plastic plastic um, finds bags with water in them, with the leather pieces in the water. So... 
the, the initial challenge was just gently taking them out, trying to laying them out and having a look at them, trying to dry them off a small bit so that I could see detail, but you don't want to dry them out either because then they start cracking and decomposing. So you have to be gentle and you have to work relatively quickly, um, but you also have to take a good look at it and interpret, you know, hopefully interpret what's there with some specialist input. Um, I usually do work with the specialist report next to me so that I can read what they have said and I can look at it myself and sort of between the two come up with a way of... of uh, There's also a conversation between you and the con conservator yeah. and the from the site diary as well you're sort of yeah. you've got these sources and you're trying to make them understand but you've got the actual physical thing in front of you as well Ex exactly so the you've, you've got as much information as you can at that point and all you can do then is just do your best i suppose um i i i, I tried to be i couldn't do much with it um touch you know I couldn't touch it very much I had to kind of lay it out gently and then just sort of work with it work around it um so initially usually what I do is I would sketch something and then I would work it up into a full drawing and I do digital illustration as opposed to I can I can do hand illustration as well but generally we do dig digital illustration because it's just much easier to work with down the line for publication and for reproducing rescaling re 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 reproducing stuff like that so and it was the way I was taught by my wonderful teacher Saren Island she taught me digitally um but I do find given the things that I've drawn over the years, hand hand illustration does look nicer for organic materials. So I, if I look at the wood that I've illustrated, for example, that's digitally done versus hand drawing, it does look nicer, I think, in the hand drawing. However, that's not always time in, in commercial archaeology. You've always got a time budget <laughs> and you've always got a deadline. So it, you have to kind of work with the, the tools you have available to you um, and so this way in this case I did them digitally using Illustrator and how did I approach I mean I just just you, you approach it pretty technically I suppose you you measure you sketch and you work you take some reference photographs you put it back away so you don't break it and then you work up um, your 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 illustration based on that um, and just yeah definitely come at it from a technical point of view because um, that was the way I, I was taught, I suppose. You're trying to re reproduce this artifact in 2D, conveying the information that you need to convey from the, the shape, the size, the scale, any detail. Um, but you also want to do that in a technical manner rather than an artistic manner because it's for a technical report, you know? Yeah, and is it oh, when you're doing these things, you're you're literally drawing these historical mm -hmm. objects. Does it ever yeah. come into your mind that you were the child, the teenager who was sitting at home drawing castles and <laughs> this is your life and you're actually you're actually doing that? You're actually doing yes, actually, because it is kind of a it's 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 kind of a long shot, right? It's not mm. there's no guarantees in archaeology that you're going to be able to make a career out of it. There's a lot of luck involved and there's a lot of timing involved. Um you have to, you know, I think it's what it's definitely one of those industries where you work people who are if you get along with working with people you're much more likely to move forward i i just i think it is because it's such a team collaborative kind of industry i do think that's that's one of the key aspects to having longevity in your career 
but in terms of actual graphics and illustration that's never something I really imagined when I was young and it's definitely it I do look back going wow I'm I'm really lucky to have the job that I have and I really enjoy the job that I have and it, it's never really where I thought my my career would go I but guess it seems I thought, that even if you didn't think it that is yeah where it was going from the very it does start. seem it doesn't it now that I look yeah. back and I kind of like try and sum it up in my own words looking looking back yeah I think yeah you must you, you might be right maybe it was just meant meant to be fair and going back you know you you said the origins you're looking at sort of various things to do with heritage and, and, mm. and history and and it's you know we we I think we've now we, we we've looked at your your work on on rural sites and and, mm. and and urban sites, but I mean the I suppose the clues in the name were Rubicon Heritage Services mm. as well. You've also done work in the heritage historic side of things, and you did some very interesting work um, on sort of Corks Revolutionary, the Irish Revolutionary oh, yeah. Heritage as well. Could you tell us a little bit about? Again, this is another string to your bow in terms of you know it's, it's, <laughs> it's heritage as well as uh, as archaeology and yeah. Yeah, that was where we we did a book for Cork's centenary sites um, for Cork County Council, um, just looking at War of Independence sites around the county, um, how they were then, how they are now, uh, and just talking about different people who were involved with different places and times, um, different events. Um, so. I had to do the kind of work I had to do for that publication was actually a bit more interesting because it was slightly, slightly different from what I do on the day to day basis. The ordinary stuff I had to do was just using QJS to create some maps of, of sites and battlefields and troop movements for certain events that happened, which was really cool. Um, that, that all, all that information would have been reconstructed by the, the the author, and then we would try and show that on some historic mapping. But we would also go to certain sites and take some photographs of them as they are now and compare them to some historic images that we sourced from, I was it would have been from whatever online Museum of Ireland, I'm not sure, I can't remember now off the top of my head where you source those, but we had to go to the online catalogue and purchase those images to use in the book. Um, but it was really cool to kind of see the differences between the old, the old, the old images and what we're looking at now. And then also we, I did, I created a sort of a timeline of events for kind of one of the, the double centerfolds of the book, um, just to show, uh, all the different things that the, that we were talking about as as the text went through, went on, um, and that was kind of cool because you just you start with like the Vikings up here and you end with like the War of Independence down here, and you just sort of show um, it was yeah it was mainly focusing on the centenary sites, but we did talk a little bit about some of the older relevant um, historical events that happened leading up to the the major more you know eighteenth and nineteenth century stuff. Um, so that was really really cool to sort of just make a something a bit something a bit more creative i suppose that's where you know when you start doing publications you move away from the technical graphics and try and figure out a way of presenting these bits of information more artistically more um clearly for a public audience as opposed for to a, like a technical report for um other academics so thinking about who your audience is and what your graphic wants to show um comes into play there um, and it's just a little bit more fun for me as well then because I get to be a bit more creative and come up with some ideas that aren't just fitting into a template of what we do for this report and what we do for that report. Yeah, I recommend to anyone because you're yeah, from Scotland, so I didn't know so much about that revolutionary period. And 
I, I, I was going to do the classic. It's by Damien Shields wrote most of the text, and it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's really fascinating. And it was one of the things I was going to skim it, and then I ended up <laughs> reading a lot of and it. It's very, it's, it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, and again, how that fitted in with your, you know, going back to your, um, your, 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 um, uh, time, uh, what would you call it? Time, time uh, timeline. Timeline, yeah. Mm. Again, you go back to the Vikings and then going to, I mean, it's interesting as an early medievalist and then, and then looking again, I didn't know too much about the Revolutionary War. There's just lots of Irish history is very, very full and there's a yes. lot. <laughs> Small engagements, but they're all the time. So I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I've looked at it from a Vikings perspective, and the raids and ambushes, and raids and ambushes, and raids, and then you look at the Revolutionary War, and your timeline really helps show that ambush, 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 ambush. There were just lots of these very small mm-hmm. events, but cumulatively making up to these very important sort of r- results from it as well. And I thought that timeline was really excellent that it kind of gave someone who didn't know the modern stuff but then I could put it in a wider perspective in a language that I understood okay there's lots of these little conflicts and yeah so yeah and I think and it's really difficult to do with such a, a long time period but you know just to I mean because you actually you have to go back and do some of this work that we've been talking about now so <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, write off I'll let I'll let Luke um uh have a have a word as well but my final point is really my question I suppose is what then would you describe to to clients to the general public to the taxpayers mm. what is the importance of commercial archaeology what 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 we do what you know why why is it so important to within a country within a county within a city I think it's just it's understanding the past I can't overestimate how important understanding the past is in shaping our present and our future. I really think that archaeology and history are massively important in, to understand it means we understand who we are, where we've come from, what has happened to make us who we are now and how we live our lives these days. And understanding things like mistakes we've made before, understanding how things have come to be a certain way really has a key is is it's a key element of how we're going to move into the future and we don't want to lose the the history that we have because it's really a it's really interesting and it's really enriching of, of our society and we want to be able to celebrate celebrate who we are as people and who we have where we have come from and also just understand why we are the way we are and how we can do better in the future. I mean, does that sound very airy fairy? I mean, <laughs> I do. Well, we're think... back to the back to the the fairies again. So <laughs> the ring the port, so I, think I just think perfect. you know we're on a journey, and if you don't know where you've been, how can you know where you're going to go? Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, that's that's kind of history in a nutshell, isn't it? You know, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <Luke>. <laughs> I, I can't. Yeah, that's that's yeah. I have two. Let's say sillier questions to finish sure. this on. Number one, any historical find or artifact mm-hmm. that you could own in your house, they say, Oh, you've done amazing work in archaeology. We want to gift you anything at all to keep oh. in your house. What would it be? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> wow. I would I would go, I would go big or go home. I would go for something shiny and gold. Absolutely. If I'm going to put something in my house that shows I'm an archaeologist, I want 
start a symbol. I want something big. Big torque. One of these big guys. Uh, yeah, tarp. some some yeah, big cool necklace or a nice, a cool armband or yeah, something, a big Egyptian sarcophagus or something. <laughs> yeah, Tutankhamun's. <laughs> or the Sutton Who helmet. Yeah, I, I don't know. Something something big and shiny probably is what I would probably pick. Yeah, I think that's a good option. The other one is for archaeologists of the future. Yeah. If they're looking back, excavating your world, mm. what one object do you think they'd find that would help them get into your story? Ooh, this is assuming that they can't access my phone and my search. <laughs> yeah, let's assume. <laughs> <laughs> Let's assume um, they didn't deteriorate. Technology is fine. <laughs> um, uh, what would what would get into my what would get into my? Well, world? I mean, your computer probably would. It probably would. Maybe my my graphics tablet, the Wacom hmm. tablet that we use oh, yeah. the actual um, graphics with. If they could figure out how it all worked together, then yeah, probably that. So that's that would, that's kind story. of the gateway between me here and the computer there. So it's like the, the gateway into the digital part. So yeah, the, the Wacom tablet, let's go with that. I like that. Fantastic. <laughs> Archaeologists well, of the future, if you're looking at this, look for the tablet. <laughs> look for the tablet. <laughs> it's always a tablet, isn't it? There's always... always. Like, like, <laughs> I feel very Indiana Jones again now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on, on, on that note, that's a perfect, any reference to Nana Jones is a perfect way to, to end a, an archaeology yeah. podcast. So it just reminds me from uh, uh, myself and Luke on behalf of the Red River Archaeology Group. Hannah Sims, this is your life. No, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Look, it was really, it was really great. Thanks very much for having me. And, yeah, well... It just felt there's some podcasts you get you get a natural end and you know what hannah is an absolute professional and the ending to that you know the importance of archaeology mentioning indiana jones i thought was just you know 10 out of 10. <laughs> yeah no it was a, that was a really enjoyable uh podcast obviously for our frequent listeners you see we kind of changed the format slightly i'm a little bit more involved in this um i like to see my role in this now as bez with the happy mondays like you're there doing all the music and I'm just giving it loads on the side <laughs> every now and again interjecting. Yeah, I mean, I hoped, I, I hope for the listener, it's, you know, it's a, a good experience, an award-winning experience that's just been further <laughs> in, improved because, you know, we all listen to lots of podcasts and I, I, we felt the ones where there's a bit more of a conversation um that helps everyone's just a bit more relaxed and you know i will you know like any archaeologist academic i'll sometimes have a bit of a tunnel vision i will get focused on something and i you know because this is outreach this is something that you know look can say with a bit of a wider perspective say what does that mean what's the situation exactly you know, I'm, what's I'm, ring for? my aim for this is to be the the non-archaeologist in the conversation who possibly asks a question that um, the academics mightn't be thinking might be interesting or to say, literally, as you say, what does that mean? I don't understand what you're talking about right now. Kind of a thing to, to help take it behind the curtain a little bit more and make all of us enjoy it and then be entertained by it. I think that's my aim anyway. 
And the great thing about the longevity, because the unique thing the Red River Archaeology Group does is the fact that it's continued it. So from the lead of, of John Skeen, Tanaya uh, in season one, and then our season two, the award-winning season two. Uh, I'm not going to tire of saying that, sorry. <laughs> um that you know we're we're evolving and we're trying to do it because it's a lot of work there's a lot of resources that the 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 group are very kindly investing in this um there's a reason why a lot of people start podcasts and don't finish them because it's a huge amount of time and effort and you have to get very nice people to chat to you and take hours out of their 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 weekly schedules or for prep and for talking to you you know we, we talk to them for maybe an hour an hour and a half on the day so it's quite a big commitment for very busy people but um, you know, we, we think hopefully you've enjoyed it. And I think Hannah was, again, just in a long line of absolutely brilliant interviews. Yeah, brilliant really and if you did enjoy it, make sure if you're a first time listener to hit like, hit subscribe. Uh, if you think other people would enjoy it, give it a share, share it on Twitter, share it on Instagram, share it on Facebook, spread the word, leave us a comment down below on uh, on YouTube. Let us know what you enjoyed. Let us know if there's any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. This is your podcast as much as it's our podcast. And we'd love to hear from the people that are listening to it. So um, please just hit us up. Drop us an email. Drop us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Luke Barry. And my name is Tom Horn. Thank you so much for listening to The Shindig. 